Welcome back to Literary Guys. This is episode two of our discussion of Amor Toll's A Gentleman in Moscow. I'm Dr. Gordon McAllen, and joining me, as always, is... Hey there, I'm Zachary Kellyan. I'm a writer, and I'm on my fourth vodka tonic. So, no more martinis? You know, I had to switch it up as we uh, get farther and farther into this novel. So last, last episode, uh, Gordy, we uh, wrapped up with the tragic incident of the Count, our protagonist, nominally, I guess, in this story, uh, getting his mustache cut off by uh, a rather rude man. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the very next scene... I can't imagine any man... Any man who would cut off another man's mustache not being rude. So it kind of goes without saying. That, that, that is true. That is true. Unless it's a kink thing. I can see that. Anyways, so he uh, is newly shaven. And this new appearance actually brings a very interesting person into his life that begins to change the world in the metropole for him. For the better, for the worse, to be determined. But a young girl named Nina approaches mm-hmm. him at the table and asks... The greatest question a child could ask you, what happened to your mustache? And so begins a fascinating friendship, an unlikely friendship, but one that is born out of a very similar need of being trapped in this hotel uh, for various different reasons. Yeah, and this this Nina girl, uh, I think if I remember correctly, her father has placed her into this hotel with her governess. And she's just a kid, 10 years old, maybe. I, I can't remember if we get her exact age. But uh, just kind of adrift in this hotel, living a kind of purposeless life, much like the Count. Although she's found a lot of interesting ways to kind of keep things going, whereas the Count just kind of seems adrift at this point. The plot device, and I think a very a very good plot device that seems reminiscent of uh, maybe a good Castlevania game, is oh. the discovery of a new key that opens up new areas of the hotel to explore. Indeed, and that actually very early in this episode brings us to today's sponsor. So, if I may, yeah, go for it. <clears throat> uh, today's sponsor is Universal Hotel Security Keys. Open any door, conveniently close any plot holes with Universal Hotel Security Keys. Find them wherever you find problematic relationships between young girls and much older men under house arrest. I'm really happy we were able to land that sponsorship. It's a very interesting marketing ploy. I mean, you can't just get them at your, your Ace Hardware. you got to find problematic relationships between older men and younger girls that on the surface might seem kind of weird but are actually very innocent. So, yeah, so the Count and Nina kind of embark on this friendship, which I think if the Count had been any other character, you know, one of the critiques that I have is how in the Count's head we are, how delightful and charming he finds himself. But I think it is probably good that we've spent enough time with him now that we know it's not weird that this man who's in his late 30s, early 40s, has this relationship with this much younger child. It's circumstantial, and of course, he's, he's not a weirdo. At, at this point in the novel, we don't actually know if he has any sexual inclinations. It does seem strange that this isn't a topic which is discussed, but coming from my perspective, I actually found that one of the more approachable parts of the story uh, he is he's a man of letters. He's a man of, mm-hmm. of words. And I, I think coming from my own perspective where uh, and, and frankly in my life where I lived in without necessarily a sexual agenda, if you will, uh, is part of, uh, of my being for a long time. I can really relate to, oh, I'm just fascinated with what's going on around me and I'm going to enjoy it and I'm going to be part of that and then maybe something will come along. You say this, but I've been to your extravagant apartment, not unlike the Hotel Metropole, 
And you. you have a large whiteboard labeled My Sexual Agenda. And under that's just one checkbox, caviar. But there's also a beautiful mind-esque pinboard that you haven't seen yet. <laughs> I, I would hope so. I would hope so. And, man, and many hidden doors, I might add. Yes. Which, whose purpose I, I am not familiar with in your apartment, nor do I care to ask. Well, the thing is, I don't have the key. So <laughs> I'm right, waiting for a Nina type to come along and help me open up those doors. Aren't, aren't we all? Plot conveniences are, are everything. The Nina relationship also comes at a time where the Count is trying to cement what is his need, what is his role, what is his obligation of living inside of this hotel. Right, and there's some interesting dynamics that from the very beginning are going on in this hotel, other than just a man under house arrest. A lot of the people at the Metropole were the people who were accustomed to serving the aristocracy of the the Tsarist Russia. Uh, they, yes, they, they entertained the best and brightest, the um, literati from around the world, and uh, those at home. And I think probably would prefer things remain that way to the point where they still give the count his title, even though at this point in Russian history, titles are supposed to be eliminated. Everyone's supposed to be equal. A lot of the employees still prefer to show him deference, even though he's just living in one of the servants' quarters. And I did think that that was an interesting dynamic to kind of explore and really talked a lot about the changes that Russia was going through at this time. It isn't to say that the hotel was completely an island outside of Russia. In fact, one of the, one of the few villains, if we hmm. even have a villain in this story, is this character who is known as the bishop. And the bishop is a tool of the government, for lack of a better word. And he is all about the removal of class structures from the metropole and everything that goes out inside of it. And to the count, this is awful. He stands for everything that he is not. Because he, what he sees is the removal of beauty from the world. Right. And so in the book, and, and this happens a little bit later on, but there's an important scene where uh, the bishop has all of the wine labels removed from the wine cellar so that all of the wine is equal, just like all of the people of Russia should be equal. And this is deemed essentially a slap in the face by the count to all of the winemakers and all of the connoisseurs who genuinely cared about this. The, the count rises above this by knowing, because he was educated and he had grown up with these things, that despite the best efforts of the bishop, that he was still able to find the wine he wanted. In this case, it was a uh, Chateauneuf de Pape, which is known for having a signature uh, of the papal seal on... I believe the, the wine itself translates to the Pope's house. Pope's new house, I think. Ah. Don't quote me on that. Um, <laughs> interestingly enough, the white wine variety of Chateauneuf de Pop appears to have a papal hat on it. But he was, he was able to know that. He had that information and was able to go into the cellar devoid of all labels and to be able to find that bottle. And that still says to me that to persevere, even though obviously that this is an odd way of persevering, but he was still able to exist and to enjoy life because he had actually taken that extra time and wasn't going to let this, uh, this autocrat come in mm. and, and ruin what he saw as essentially art. So I, I see your sympathies and where they lie. 
Uh, I am, for the record, uh, not a communist. Just we're recording this podcast in 2020, and you never know when McCarthyism is going to come back into play. So just for the record, I, I don't support the Communist Party. But I actually found myself sympathizing with people like the bishop who were trying to equalize things, because certainly I agree with your take on the Count's appreciation for beauty in the world. But beauty at what cost? You know, certainly the Romanovs, the Tsarists at the time, had many, many beautiful things. You know, filled museums with some of the best artwork in the world, had gilded palaces across, you know, the largest land mass under single control in the history of the world. And yet, everyone in Russia was starving. People couldn't even get bread. Um, the World War Two, World War One, excuse me, which had just been fought, millions of men went to their deaths. Some of them without even ammo in their guns because the czars didn't want to fully fund the war. So while I, I can appreciate, you're my friend. You're a man who appreciates the finer things in life. I can appreciate that perspective. It does seem to me like the count is a little bit oblivious to what's actually going on in Russia around him. And while somebody like the bishop might be extreme in his measures, and you could certainly argue is a cog in a much bigger, much more dangerous machine. I can kind of sympathize with that guy who saw all the ills and evils that went on under Tsarist Russia, and it's trying to level the playing field a little bit. I wouldn't say that the Count is devoid of knowing what's going on in broader Russia. He is well-read. In addition to reading the newspapers, he doubts the newspapers. He understands he when, when he's being presented with propaganda. In fact, that reminds me of a humorous anecdote about the Count and newspapers. After scanning the headlines, the Count delved into an article on a Moscow manufacturing plant that was exceeding its quotas. He then read a sketch on various improvements in Russian village life. When he shifted his attention to a report on the grateful school children of Kazan, he could not help but remark on the repetitiveness of this new journalistic style. Not only did the narrow set of views with such limited vocabulary that one inevitably felt as if one had read it all before. It wasn't until the fifth article that the Count realized that he had read it all before, for this was yesterday's paper. With a grunt, he tossed it back on the table and looked at the clock behind the front door. Anyway, I, I don't think that he doesn't understand what's going on around him, I, but I do believe that he wants to stick up for the great things that Russia has created. In fact, th th there's a wonderful scene that occurs um, in this part of the book where he confronts some German gentlemen who happen to be dining at mm -hmm. the restaurant where he has begun to serve as a waiter. The general synopsis of the scene is that the, the Germans are positing that the only major contribution that Russia has made to the West has been vodka. And he will not let this stand. And in fact, it being the Count, he doesn't let it stand in very dramatic and flamboyant fashion, which is wonderful. And he, he posits that vodka is one of four things that Russia has contributed. Uh, the first being the work of Tolstoy and Chekhov. The second being the first scene of the first act of uh, Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker. And then, I'm going to keep talking about it because it's a big part of this book, it's <laughs> caviar again. Big spoiler. And as I mentioned, uh, please tune into my sister podcast on Talk and Row, all about fish eggs, all the time. One man's sexual agenda with caviar. 
I think that's probably pushing it a little too far. But what, what do you think? I, is, it, is it wrong that if your country is creating great things that you want them to be celebrated? Well, that, that, I like that you mentioned that scene because it is really interesting because, of course, not that we're a, a history podcast, but it does dive into a lot of the suspicions people had that the Bolsheviks, who were one of the contending parties for leadership of Russia at the time, were being funded, including Lenin, by the Germans. And so this conversation that he has about Russian culture with the Germans is a very interesting one and has many layers, and I can support that being included in the book. But one of the things that I think this scene illustrates just as well is that I think the Count is not in touch. I mean, he was a part of that class inequity, that class discrepancy. He lived in a place called Idle Hour, I believe, which is a perfect... Uh, description of what he did there. The only time he left it was to pay social visits by horse and carriage to other rich people. So you say that he's well-read, which he is, but I think he's still cherry-picking his sources to give himself this idea that refinement and beauty and leisurely activities are in itself everyone's right and everyone's just reward for just being alive and and I don't think that that's the way the world works and I think while there's a lot of problems with what's going on at Russia at the time and certainly the Soviet Union would rise out of these ashes and become a very dangerous world power at the time it's tough for me not to sympathize with the people who are starving outside in the streets just outside the metropole while this poor count is contending with trying to memorize really fancy wine bottles without their labels. This is actually a good time to talk about one of the characters who we have not mentioned at all, which is Mishka, who is the poet friend of the Count. When the twice-tolling clock struck twelve, even Mishka could see the merit in having another glass of wine. And toasts were made not only to the Grand Duke, but to Helena and the Countess, to Russia and Idlauer, to poverty and pacing, and to every other worthy facet of life that they could think of. And uh, for such a lack of uh, masculinity as I perceive in our dear the Count, uh, it's, it's kind of ironic to me that the poet in this, uh, to me, ends up being the most admirable man in the book. So do you believe that the political angle that you're talking about here is, is perhaps best summarized by Mishka? I, I do. I think Mishka is, is a man of refinement, a man of arts and letters, a cultured individual. Um, but I think he also realizes the urgency of what is happening in Russia. And whether or not you agree with his agenda and what he's trying to accomplish at the end of the day, I think Mishka is a man who's got agency, a man who's doing things. Um, spoiler alert, he's the reason the Count's even alive in the first place. This is true. Who would have imagined, he said, when you were sentenced to life at the Metropole all those years ago, that you had just become the luckiest man in all of Russia? And so for me, you know, seeing men like Mishka who are putting their life on the line and then seeing somebody like the Count who, yeah, is making marginal improvements in the lives of the staff at the Metropole and is, you know, slowly working his influence in over the course of many decades. It's very tough for me to sympathize with a guy like that when there's real men like Mishka out there doing real men's work. You mean writing poems? Correct. Okay. Just we're on the same page. So from a plot perspective, we're watching the Count and Nina over the course of about 10 years. Yes. And her growing up and her eventually going off 
and disappearing from the Metropole and and seeing her uh, become a young woman and getting married. Mm-hmm. And in the Count, who is understandably a little conflicted about all of this, and, and he's just getting these little glimpses, little glimpses of her life. It's interesting with her um, example of what a man could be in the Count. She marries somebody who I think is very different from the Count, a man who has his own agency and who takes big risks. Well, he can also leave the hotel. That's a good point. You know, I think uh, one of the things that we're glossing over here is another major turning point in the Count's life. The Count gets laid. Indeed. Anna Urbanova. Anna. Um, this is a quintessential example from the book of, of how I don't relate to the Count as a man. This at least initial sexual encounter he has with Anna just happens to him. He has no agency in the situation. She takes complete control and charge of the situation, which certainly for 2020 is, is admirable and, and impressive in her own right. I like her as a character. I like that as a dopish man like the Count is slinking away from her bedroom after her sexual conquest, she reminds him to turn out the light as he's leaving. So she's a cool character. She's got agency. She's showing some verve and some get-go. How can I, as a man, relate to the Count where he shows no sexual leanings one way or the other. He doesn't desire to have a family. He doesn't desire the things that at least nominally we're told men should desire in fiction. And yet things like beautiful movie stars are just throwing themselves at him. It, it didn't strike as true to me, but I would love your thoughts on it. I think your view of the Count is as someone who is perhaps a little bit more sheepish, a little bit more withdrawn. Mm-hmm. And in the way I see him painted is much more of maybe a little bit flamboyant, maybe a little bit of a of a, a social butterfly, someone who who knows exactly how to interact with someone in a way that captivates. And yes, they have a little bit of of interplay, but he still piqued her interest. And and that was part of what uh, drew them back together. Like I, I think maybe the way to put it is that I think the Count is a magnetic person, whether he, he wants to actively be or not. And if you take that view, I don't think that it, this is like all by accident or that he played no part in this. No, it was because of who he, he is. And it's because of who he is that I find him very interesting as a character. So I think the the lens that you're putting on top of this mm-hmm. would make him unappealing to someone like Anna. But the lens I'm putting on top of it and what makes him a very positive individual is exactly what drew her to him. I think you bring up a very interesting point. I would counter that with, we are at this stage in the Count's life, mustacheless. And what woman would ever want to bet a man without a mustache? I don't know. You're going to have to answer that one for me. It, it, it's just an interesting, I, I, I like the twist that you're putting on it. I think that there's something very much to be said about, you know, the concept of men of good breeding and the role that they must play in social situations to be the life of the party, to be the ringleader in terms of entertaining all the guests, being able to fluidly transition between topics. I, I see your point. And I think in that regard, the Count absolutely has some of those masculine qualities at play. Well, I think that's probably a good point to to leave our discussion. We can pick up next time as we transition from the Nina part of the story into the Sophia part of the story and all of the intricacies that brings. I, I look forward to talking about the Count's other relationship with the much younger girl. 
There's just no way to say that without it sounding weird. But we, those of you who've read the novel, those of you who are considering reading the novel, it's not weird. You'll just have to take our no, word for it's it. It's not weird at all. No. Um, in fact, there's something kind of sweet about the whole thing. So. And those of you who want to keep abreast of what we're reading, what we're talking about, give us suggestions for what to read in the future, you can follow us at Literary Guys. That's G-U-I-S-E, because we think we're clever, much like the Count. Uh, Dr. McAllen, if somebody wants to follow you on Twitter and, and hear your thoughts on caviar, how might they do so? Just at Gordon McAllen. And if you want to learn about things that I've got published, things that are coming out, or just see great pictures of my dog, you can follow me on social media at Zach Kellyan, Z-A-C-K-E-L-L-I-A-N. And so with that, this has been Literary Guys signing off. <laughs>